Hello friends, welcome to Beyond the News. It's Friday the 15th of September, coming up on today's show. Going to be looking at life through an historical lens today on the show. We're going to be finally taking a look at something I've wanted to play on the show for a while now, which is the Mouse Utopia experiment done in the later half of the 20th century. And in the middle of the 20th century, the Nuremberg Code was formed. I've been talking about it on this show since at least December of 2020. You can go and look back at the podcast, so all timestamps you can see for yourself. But finally talking about it will be Dr. John Campbell. His uh, doctorate is in... Uh, not an MD, I don't think it's more uh, academic, but anyway, still knows his medical type stuff. And he'll be talking about the Nuremberg Code, its sad origins, and how it may have been breached, argue some people, in today's world with the whole vaccine coercion type thing. Also going to be looking at unconstitutional orders in the United States and how the local sheriffs have stood up to the governor on their unconstitutional orders as well. That and much, much more coming up on today's show. So let's begin with that last story. So I've said before, if they try to take the Americans' guns, it's enshrined in the Constitution. Regardless of what you, whether you think about it, America was formed by a load of armed rebels and they said we're going to make certain we keep people in a state of being armed in case we need to rebel again because we think that government is naturally tyrannical and we're going to put all these steps in place to uh, try and stop them being tyrannical but if they still persist, blatantly so, then uh, we want you to keep your guns for that reason. It has nothing really to do with hunting, although obviously back in those days it would have helped, and uh, not to mention keeping you safe from bears and other such things. But um, its main use was to uh, f well beat my ancestors. The redcoats are coming, the redcoats are coming, no taxation without representation. So what happens when you get a tyrannical authority that say, well, we know it's not fair or we know it's not just, uh, but we're just going to do it anyway. Well, in this particular case in the United States, they have a Second Amendment. I'm not arguing for or against here. I'm saying that they have a constitutional republic and around that a democracy is formed. So, for example, um, you couldn't have 51% of the democracy vote to take away the guns because they are beyond the democracy, they are enshrined in the constitution. So um, the democracy cannot change all laws, it cannot change, uh, again I'm not a lawyer, I'm definitely not a constitutional lawyer, but I'm giving the idea between a difference between a republic and a democracy, and I'm certain an expert lawyer would be able to go, ah oh, Jim, well not exactly true on that point, I'm just giving you a layman's view of the difference between democracy and republic. And what happens when a governor does an unconstitutional order. Now, in countries like mine in Britain, they do we have a constitution? Some people say it's the Magna Carta. Some people say that that's null and void. Um, so would we be able to have 51% vote to do something horrible to the other 49%? Or are their human rights enshrined in some sort of um, constitution or human rights? Um, you know, would there be a human rights constitution? So you get the idea that uh, the difference between the laws and the way they're made in Britain and in America. So 
I think in Britain it's more or less the law is whatever the government says it is at that current time, more or less. And again, I would like to hear, I'm no expert, I have no legal qualifications whatsoever, but I'd be interested to hear if a British lawyer would go, ah, well, there are actually certain things. And I know that there are differences between statutory law, maritime law, and, um, did I say statutories? Statutory, common law, yeah, all those kinds of things. Uh, I know there are differences in those, but you get the idea that I'm trying to say is that the Americans have an extra degree of insurance with their laws, with their constitution enshrined. You know, they all swear to protect it against enemies, foreign and domestic. Well, what happens if you do potentially get one that could be construed as a domestic enemy would be someone that was trying to overthrow the constitution. And that what seem, that's what seems to have happened with the Second Amendment, or at least tried to, in New Mexico this week. Um, there were, so what would happen when um, someone in power gets a load of emotional reaction and goes, we don't care about the law anymore, we're going to override it with the pure force of our emotion and our will, and we're going to act unconstitutionally and tell you that we're still acting legally. Well, what happened this week in America in parts of New Mexico was a sheriff had to come out and tell the governor what he thought of her unconstitutional orders and why he wasn't going to be following them. So it's I would you can't even say it's like a, a state versus federal level because the governor is meant to represent the state but what happens when you elect people to uphold the laws and not only do they not do them they go against them and say that yep it's for the good and it's new law even though they don't have the power to do that in uh, America. Well this speech from this uh, Bernalino County Sheriff possibly has the answer. Or not as the case may be. Oh, I need to refresh it. Lovely. Always enjoy. Love, love, I love it when I queue up these videos all perfectly and none of them work. And I do not or never will hedge on what is right. And I take my oath seriously. In reference to concealed carry and open carry, the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office will not enforce this segment of the order. While I understand the urgency, the temporary ban challenges the foundations of our Constitution but most importantly, it is unconstitutional. My oath was to protect the Constitution, and that is what I will do. The governor made it clear in her press conference. She knew we as law enforcement did not agree with the order, and as a result, this was solely her decision. Other than this ban being unconstitutional, here are other reasons why I will not enforce the order. One, what many forget, is I have enough violence here in Bernalillo County. I do not want to have political violence towards my deputies or here in Bernalillo County. My job is to keep the peace and to make sure that the citizens of Bernalillo County are safe, and I do not believe that this order will help me do so. I'm a law enforcement professional. This order will not do anything to curb gun violence other than punish law-abiding citizens from their constitutional right to self-defense. Let me give you a personal story. Last week as I'm sitting here as the sitting sheriff, I get a phone call that my brother also was a victim of gun violence last week that many of you do not know. 
While he and my nephew were sitting in their car, they were shot at and their vehicle was impacted by numerous rounds. How can I, as a sheriff, tell him to put his firearms away and not be able to protect himself? I have a fact for you. Criminals do not follow the law or a public health order. Never seen it, we will never see criminals follow the law. Once again, this only punishes law-abiding citizens. What I also want to address is what we're doing on the gun violence here in Bernalillo County and helping in the state of New Mexico. It is quite irritating for me to see how this 30-day ban completely overshadowed the robust conversations that we had with the governor in the office on what we are going to do to curb gun violence and for people to stop being victims. We had arguments, but again, we had solutions. We had an 11-year-old that was senselessly killed, but there are also many other numerous victims of gun violence, not just here in Bernalillo County, but our nation. A couple of things that I will be asking to do as we get serious. I will take your questions, but let me tell you what we're going to do because we do need to not overshadow what we need to do to keep our citizens safe. I will be asking the Crime Reduction Director for our agency, the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office, to lead a task force of various law enforcement agencies to focus on crimes with firearms. I will have continued meetings for early intervention of not only adult, but youth offenders. I am requ respectfully requesting as an elected official to please consider a special session to spe specifically address crime, not just in Bernalillo County, but for the state of New Mexico. We need to look at solutions to address violent crimes involving juveniles with firearms, adults with firearms, pre-trial release, harsh state penalties for violent crimes, which also involve a firearm. Collaboration and planning will and continue with the mayor of Albuquerque, Tim Keller, chief of New Mexico State Police, Troy Wiesler, chief of the Albuquerque Police Department, Harold Medina, and district attorney, Sam Bregman. I will also be... So, what would have happened uh, sheriffs are an elected office in the United States, from what I understand. What would have happened if that guy had said, um, oh, it's all completely constitutional and all his constituents that voted for him are going, no, it's not. And he goes, yes, it is. What would have happened then? So, you know, uh, and the governor comes then on and goes, uh, yes, it is. And um, you're questioning the now we're questioning the governor, and you're questioning uh, the county sheriff, and uh, oh, we've just passed a new law to say that's illegal as well now. Um, or you know, we'll pass laws to say you can't protest about it, or at least pro can't protest it here, and they go that's against the first amendment. Well, not anymore. What what would have happened then? What would have happened if there were no good people within law enforcement to stand up to go? Uh, actually. It doesn't matter how many times you say legal, or in this case, it doesn't matter how many times you say constitutional, it is unconstitutional. What would have happened then? What would happen if there were no good people in the middle ranks?
to stand up to the bad orders coming from the top ranks? Who would protect the bottom ranks then? Though, you could argue that some of those laws were breached with coercion, uh, the basic human laws, and that, that it is. Do you believe in this as an international law? Was it passed as an international law? There's all sorts of debates, but what can be certain is, would you really want to be on the side that is against the Nuremberg Code, given how it was created? And Dr. John is now going to uh, create that, uh, tell you how it was created, and it's um, the unfortunate historical context of how it came about in '47. Um, and then he's going to relay that to how it may possibly uh, affect today's world. So here's Dr. John Campbell, and this video is entitled The Nuremberg Code. Well, it's Wednesday, the 19th of September, and a warm welcome to this video. Now, today's subject couldn't be more serious. It's about the uh, Nuremberg Code of 1947. During the Second World War, of course, many atrocities were committed and uh, a certain group of atrocities were experimentation on human beings. Deeply evil acts. Now, um, my life kind of changed a bit, really, when I went to this uh, villa here. This is the, uh, the Vancey Conference Villa. And on the 20th of January 1942, Reinhard Heydrich and Adolf Eichmann and cronies met here in this beautiful setting near Berlin to work out what they euphemistically called the final solution. And this whole villa now, uh, in, in immensely good taste, it has to be said, but very distressingly, has been converted into a uh, memorial stroke museum for victims of uh, human experimentation. Now, I'm not going to show you the uh, material that I photographed uh, in there, um, but if you do get the chance to visit, as I say, life-changing experience. Nuremberg Code, based on 10 points. The first one, um, all people that are experimented on in human experimentation, and this is sometimes necessary, we think about randomised double-blind controlled trials, for example, but they must enter it with complete free will. It must be utterly voluntary. And they must have complete informed consent to know what they're doing. And I'll unpick some of the details on that later. But Can free will, informed going? consent, people must know what they're getting into unambiguously. Second point, um, the human experiment must be the only way to get the information. And that information must be worthwhile. It must be worth getting that information. And it must be based, third point, must be based on previous knowledge, possibly animal experimentation, which we could debate about as a separate ethical issue, of course, but based on the best available science. So this is not just some sort of leap into the dark, some completely, oh, I don't know, completely untested technology, for example, that we're experimenting on millions of people with. It must be based on the best available science and previous knowledge with full experimentation getting up to that stage. Fourthly, it must avoid unnecessarily any unnecessary suffering. There must be no unnecessary suffering in human experimentation. Not saying there should be zero suffering, but it shouldn't be unnecessary. But of course, it's all entered into completely voluntarily. 
I've had experiments done on me at work, but I've volunteered to, to go into it. Uh, physiological calibration of instruments, for example, have been done on me when I was young and fit. <laughs> um, fifth point, death will not occur. There must be no reason to expect that subjects will die. Now, there is a caveat here that the experimenting doctor may choose to experiment on himself, and if he dies, then that, that's his informed consent. But apart from that, death will not occur, certainly not to the subjects. So they've put a little uh, law in there for the crazy scientists, the uh, Dr. Jekylls out there that still want to, you know, <laughs> the libertarian in me says if they want to go ahead and experiment on themselves. Fair enough. Sixth point, the, the risk that is taken must be proportional to the potential benefit and the outcome that comes from the experiment. So this has got to be a reasonably expected beneficial outcome, which is proportional to the risk which has been taken. There must be anticipation of any possible injuries or deaths. That even if this is a remote possibility, this must be anticipated. In other words, people carrying out human experimentation must think ahead, must anticipate what could possibly go wrong here. Has this always been done in the time period since 1947? Is up to your interpretation. Eighth, research must be conducted and closely supervised by proper doctors and scientists. Now, just pausing it there, do you remember the oh, the podcast I did where I read out a Guardian article making reference to former Lewis, Member of Parliament here in England's uh, Norman Baker's book on the amount of times the government in the UK has experimented on its own population without any consent at all. Uh, that's not me saying that. That's uh, me. I've read it out on the podcast. The Guardian talking about a book written by a former MP. So I assume there's going to be lawyers that would have checked that out at some point to make certain before you go accusing the government of breaking such codes and stuff like this. But um, yeah, just just do it. Just do it. Call it a conspiracy theory, declassify it in 30 years and go, oh, we did do it. And then Norman can write a book about it. And that's the crazy thing. There are people that still go, that's a conspiracy. No, no, it it was called a conspiracy theory and then it was declassified as real. So, And they just look at you like, oh, they wouldn't, no, no. Oh, government wouldn't do that. Well, that was a government 30 years ago. A lot's changed then. <laughs> I'm sure it has. So it's not take this experimental treatment off you go, live your life as normal. I might see you if there's a problem, but no, no. It has to be closely, properly supervised by the relevant uh, experts in the field. Ninthly, the subject may opt out at any time. So the subject can say, no, had enough of this. I'm opting out, forget it, walk away at any time, completely free to do so. And the tenth point is the doctors, scientists conducting the research must be prepared to terminate the research if they think there is a significant or realistic risk of unacceptable levels of harm to the individual being uh, experimented on. So that's the Nuremberg Code of 1947. Now, I am going to post the, uh, the whole thing for your perusal. I think we'll have to just have a quick look through uh, some of the main points now on the overhead. So this is the Nuremberg Code, 1947. It's in many historical documents. 
It was doctors on trial, doctors and nurses after the war. And it's frightening to think that in a relatively modern, sophisticated country, doctors and nurses collaborated with the elimination of human beings, other human beings thought were substandard and deserved to be eliminated. That doctors and nurses could actively take part in this because they were told to is simply terrifying. Doctors and nurses do what they're told. It would appear in this situation to the point of ending the lives of other people. This comes from the uh, German doctors trial 1946. Now the doctors argued, it's all, this is, this is the codes here. You can look them up for yourself. I'll put some references in. Um, that their experiments were no different from those that had been conducted before and there was no law anyway, so they could do what they wanted. That was their argument. So as a result of this, the permissible experiments, permissible medical experiments were drawn up by this Nuremberg Code, part of the Nuremberg trial process after the Second World War, published by the American government in this uh, document. Here's the first point. Voluntary consent of the human subject is essential. They have to have legal capacity to give consent. So people that don't have capacity cannot be experimented on. Uh, they should have free, uh, completely free to exercise personal choice without any intervention, element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching and all the legal safeguard languages that are, are included. There must be no coercion. They must have sufficient knowledge to give informed consent, understanding and enlightened decision before they say yes to anything. They should know the nature, duration and purpose of the experiment. They should know the methods, all inconveniences and hazards that can be reasonably expected and other adverse effects should be made clear uh, before the start of the experiment, before they decide if they want to cooperate. This must be open, clear and above board. Full information can be given. And part of the reason I'm angry is because I wasn't given full information in some events that have occurred over the past few years by people that should have given me full information over the past few years. How can you make an informed decision without full disclosure by those leaders that have power over us? The duty and uh, responsibility of the person conducting the experiment. It's a personal duty, they have to do that themselves. They can't delegate it to someone else. Second, the experiment should you'd feel, feel, you'd yield fruitful results. Can't get it by other means. Not some random harebrained idea. It doesn't actually say... There shouldn't be a financial motive in the Nuremberg Code. But maybe we should add that as point 11. There should be no financial motive by the experimenter on those being experimented on. To make money out of people being experimented on. That's so appalling. It didn't even seem to be considered in 1947. This was ideological rather than financial. But to me it goes without saying that People should not be experimented on for others 
to make money out of. Point three, experiments should be based on previous experimentation with full knowledge, not some harebrained idea that we simply don't know what the outcomes will be. If we have full knowledge and we're just building the next stage, then we're more likely to get it right than if it's a completely new idea. Four, the experiment should avoid unnecessary harm and suffering. Five, no experiment should be conducted if there's an a priori reason believing death or disab disability, dis disabling injury will occur, except perhaps where the experimenter themselves takes that risk upon themselves. And there are many noble examples of self-experimenters in history. Jo John Hunter uh, famously uh, infected himself with um, uh, uh, sexually uh, transmitted uh, pus. Uh, to, to work out the nature of those form of diseases. Um, Barry Marshall infected himself with Helicobacter pylori to demonstrate the effectiveness of his uh, eradication therapy and went on to save untold millions of, well, he does know, several million lives uh, from uh, peptic ulceration. At point six, the degree of risk should never exceed that determined by the importance of the problem to be solved, the proportionality. Uh, proper preparation should be made and adequate facilities provided to protect experimental subjects against even the remote possibility of death. If there's any possibility of the subject dying, the experiment should not be carried out. It's very simple. Eight, experiments should only be conducted by very highly qualified people and should be well supervised. Now, there's no point having three well-qualified well people who live, I don't know, let's say in, in I don't know, Geneva, let's say in Geneva, uh, saying, oh, we should do this. They should be experimenting every, uh, supervising every single subject that's being experimented on. We need the expertise and the supervision together. High degrees of skill. Nine. Subject can pack in at any time, finish at any time, and the experimenter may need to bring the subject, they may need to bring the experiment to uh, an end uh, at any time. They must be fully prepared to do this. That's the Nuremberg Code, 1947. Makes a lot of sense to me. I'd like to see a new clause inserted for the uh, financial gain. But uh, it's a pretty comprehensive, well-drawn-up document after the doctor's trial at the time. The indictment on humanity that it needed to be done in the first place, of course. Have we moved on from then? Of course, we hope so. If history does anything, it's a warning. History is a warning for the future. I'm not going to overinterpret, we'll leave it there. Now, let's finish on a brighter note, for goodness sake. Um, this is from our uh, community health project in Uganda. Now, we're, we're actually buying at the moment um, maize because it's quite cheap in Uganda at the moment and it gets very expensive later on and poor people can't afford to buy it. So that's where so I'll leave that. Um, We've got a 
uh, he's doing some wonderful things with maze and everything so do check that out but I'll just keep it to the Nuremberg thing you can see the whole video in the link for yourself I own no copyrights on anything move on now UK fails to ban 36 harmful pesticides outlawed for use in EU campaigners say Britain becoming toxic poster child of Europe and accuse ministers of breaking Brexit promise on standards Helena Horton environmental reporter Wednesday the 13th of September of this year the UK has failed to ban 36 pesticides that are not allowed for use in the EU as campaigners say it's become the toxic poster child of Europe Though ministers promised the UK would not water down EU-derived environmental standards after Brexit, there have been multiple instances of divergence since the country left the bloc. Now the country is failing to phase out pesticides that have been found to be harmful to human health and the environment at the same time as the EU, according to research from Pesticide Action Network. 13 of the 36 chemicals are considered highly hazardous pesticides under UN definitions used to identify the most harmful substances. Four of these are highly toxic to bees, one contaminates water and one is highly toxic to aquatic organisms. Um, now, it may have not mentioned things there, but you would have thought if it was harmful to other living things, it might not be ideal to be ingested by humans but i could be wrong um and bear, what is ironic is that's cropping up as like the live kind of thing on the uh the sidebar of the guardian is um rishi sunak has just said he'll ban big dogs for the name of the safety of the uk well all the chemicals in the food supply though well, well 36 of them four of them are really bad no, 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 don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm not taking on the chemical companies and their lobbyists and their lawyers. The dogs have no one. Ban them. <laughs> Welcome to the UK in 2023. UK is becoming the toxic poster child of Europe. The government has repeatedly promised that our environmental standards won't slip post-Brexit. And yet here we are, less than four years later, and we're already seeing our standards fall far behind those of the EU with UK bees and other pollinators in decline and our waters never more polluted. So all the people that voted for Brexit to leave, myself included, should be on this. This is, uh, I always said at the time, vote to get rid of, vote to be under the rule of thumb of one corrupt group of power hungry people, i.e. The UK rather than two, either the UK and Europe. But then you've still got the uh, the one group of corrupt people that you've really got to put on that tight leash. But then again, the British people, I've said it before and I'll say it again, the British people really don't care that much anymore so long as the TV switches on. You're not really that bothered about much these days. From what I can see anyway, or at least they don't do anything about it, hence uh, all our the price we pay for all our bills and everything like that there's there loads of water that's really toxic is my child drinking it oh oh no oh well, that's brexit for you isn't it what's on the telly moving on now germany and belgium are looking to ban apple's iphone 12 due to fears radiation could damage people's health Who'd have thought radiation could damage people's health? <laughs> what sort of conspiracy theory is that? Now, of course, I'm being partly facetious because there are many different types of radiation within the spectrum, but still. 
Germany and Belgium are investigating Apple's iPhone 12 due to radiation levels. The move comes two days after France banned the sale of the smartphone. And this is by Stacey Libertore, 14th of September. Regulators in Germany and Belgium are set to review potential health risks linked to Apple's iPhone 12 two days after France banned device sales over radiation fears. French Watdogs revealed Tuesday that testing of the smartphone showed radio frequency energy absorbed by the body exceeded legal limits by 40%. Apple contested the French findings, saying the iPhone 12 was certified by multiple international bodies as compliant with radiation standards. <laughs> I love the way this usually goes. Um, Our meter says it's over the limit. Well, we've got lots of findings to say that it is compliant with loads of other countries' findings. Yeah, but the radiation still is higher than it is. Yeah, yes, but not in other countries. The magic wand is waved in other countries. Wave the magic wand here. Just call it a conspiracy theory. Go on, go on. If you go out and get everything to say... Radiation coming on the phone is a conspiracy theory. You know it's good for business. Come on, just wave the magic wand, call it a conspiracy theory, and we're good to go. Apple contested the front yet moving on, but now Germany and Belgium regulators said they could follow France's lead as Italy and Spain monitor the situation. The French watchdogs came to the claims after carrying out random tests on one for one phones, including the iPhone 12. So this is the Daily Mail, so I can scroll down. It just gives you the the science behind it now which I do recommend um, I don't know if it'd be good for radio but this is actually quite good in depth where they tell you about the legal limits and all that kind of stuff and what different phones have in terms of their limits it's actually I don't think it would be really good radio for me to just read out all the numbers but it looks like a good bit of journalism there they've actually done some good I like numbers and stuff good on them so if you want to see the different um, radiation limits on models and around the world, uh, the, the Daily Mail's done a few down the bottom of the article there. Fair play. That's nice to see. So you can go and read it all for yourself. I'll give you sort of more of a snapshot. Keep it snappy. Snappy as I can be anyway. Right, let's have a little uh, best rated, worst rated then, shall we? Okay, best rated. Up 519, down 67. So reasonably polarised, not particularly engaged. How does individual member states banning something that has been approved for the sale in the EU square with the EU's unimpeachable single market? Surely this is against one of the EU's pillars. That's an interesting point. I'm sure there's, there's some sort of national sovereignty things put in there in back doors for cases like this. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> we'll see. Um, right. So, next comment here is up 469, down 13. So if they're banned for being unsafe, will Apple need to refund and compensate? Another interesting comment there. Let's have a look at the third one. Uh, next one is up 372, down 9. I'm perfectly happy for Europe to ban my iPhone 12 if Apple will replace it with the 15 Pro Max. Alright, I'll just leave that there then. Okay, next article here. It's from Politico now. South Africa paid double EU price for COVID vaccines. Unredacted contracts reveal. NGOs say the contracts are evidence of pernicious pharmaceutical bullying. Is that fancy talk for saying you can get a lobbyist in there 
to get him to pay your mate double what it's worth. Oh, well, double what it's worth is someone else. Unredacted COVID-19 vaccine contracts between several pharmaceutical companies and South African government reveal pernicious pharmaceutical bullying claims civil society organisations with the country paying higher prices for some of their COVID vaccines than the EU. So the headline read double EU price for COVID vaccines, but as we move on, that's now moved to some of their COVID vaccines. The public release of the contracts between the South African government and four vaccine providers, Johnson & Johnson, was that the one that even the UK banned? I mean, you have just listened to what I've said about the UK government not really caring about a variety of things. But they actually... Was that the one? I can't remember well. Which one was it? Was that the one that they... No, that was the AstraZeneca one, wasn't it? Or was it Johnson & Johnson as well? I forget now. AstraZeneca was the first to uh, get their elbow, wasn't it? Yeah. I can't remember what happened to Johnson & Johnson now. Pfizer... The Serum Institute of India and Gavi the Vaccine Alliance follows a court case brought by NGO Health Justice Initiative, which resulted in the South African government being forced to hand over the agreements. The contracts reveal that the Serum Institute of India, which produced the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, charged South Africa $5.35 a dose when the EU paid just $1 EU78, according to leap prices. Well, can you imagine them there? It's the postage, mate, isn't it? It's the shipping. EU's just next door. Oh, it's all the way to South Africa. Yeah. South Africa paid $10 a dose for the J&J vaccine. 15% more than the EU paid. Um, about $2.17 at the time those pub prices were published. Right, so you go and read that for yourself and get all the exact breakdowns. However, South Africa was able to secure a discount over the EU price for the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine paying $10 compared to just 15.50 euros, just under $19, reportedly charged to the EU. But NGOs say it will still it was still more than the cost of $6.75 that the African Union was reportedly charged. Multiple civil society organisations have analysed the South African contracts in recent days since they were made available to the Health Justice Initiative, concluding that the agreements reveal Pernicious pharmaceutical bullying and heavy-handedness told the initiative's Fatima Hassan. The terms and conditions in these contracts and agreements are so one-sided and so in favour of multinational corporations that they beg a belief, she said. I've always said, haven't I? I've always said, people say, oh, I think our politicians are doing an awful job. I always say, I think they're doing a wonderful job. And they look at me so surprised. And then I add, well, they're not working for us. They're working for big corporations. And if their job is to make as much money for the corporations as possible and screw over the taxpayer as much as they can without them figuring it out enough for them to revolt and grab the pitchforks, bingo. That's that's the ultimate. That's always my view on a lot of the politicians in the Western world. Not all. And there are some good and bad in all parties, but that's my general view. And so they go, oh, these... These politicians are incompetent. No, they're highly competent. And they'll look at you like, how can you call Boris Johnson highly competent? Well, because his job was to get as much money for his mates from people like us and convince you that he wasn't smart enough to be able to do that. He wasn't convince you that he was an oaf that didn't know what he's doing about this, that and the other, when really he's being part of an orchestrated international agenda that seems to be all following various things on lockdowns and vaccines and convince you at the same time he doesn't have the brains to be able to be part of a conspiracy like that. I'd say job done with you, mate. 
Do you think he's an idiot? You know? He locked you all down, which was counterproductive. Got you all to take these vaccines, which, <laughs> don't even get me started on that. Did it all while doing, you know, partying with himself, you know, having his party in while you were locked down at the same time. And what's happened? Nothing. I'd say that's an incredibly effective agent. He's achieved his goals with absolutely no repercussions. Oh, he lost his job. Oh, that's the repercussion, is it? <laughs> I'd say he did a very, very good job. And, um, yeah, now, I'm not saying it's but you get my point on that. If you, if you think about, if you stop thinking about, oh, the politicians are doing such a terrible job, look at the state of the country, and you can probably, you can probably understand those comments in a variety of the places around the Western world now. If you replace that theory with, um, they're not working for you, but their job is to eradicate the middle class and put in as much police state surveillance and control as possible so that they can head things off the pass in case you ever figure things out how bad they are and you want to try and peacefully protest or change things. And then add the extra layer to say, there's no way this is all a conspiracy. Look at these idiots. They couldn't organise getting drunk in a brewery. And you have been the sophisticated. You have been a victim of a very sophisticated twenty-first century asymmetrical warfare, a warfare of the mind, a warfare of the mind on what limits you think is and isn't possible. So, for example, oh, it's not possible Boris Johnson isn't smart enough to be able to organise something like that. But what if he worked for someone who did? And then the PR campaign which is mainstream media, was there to say, nah, he's on his own, he's an idiot, and keep you convinced of that. Now, that isn't to say that everyone's a part of everything, and every newsreader is there going, oh, we've, we know Boris Johnson's part of a conspiracy, we've got to uh, today make out that he's an idiot. Of course not. It's a very compartmentalised one. But you get my point. What if the politicians are doing a fantastic job, they're just following an agenda that isn't the one of the people all over the Western world. Next up, experts call for global moratorium on efforts to geoengineer climate. Techniques such as solar radiation management may have unintended consequences, scientists say. Government should place a moratorium on efforts to geoengineer the planet's climate as greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise and the climate crisis takes hold. A panel of global experts has urged geoengineering is highly controversial, but discussions of its feasibility are gathering paces. Impacts of extreme weather driven by climate breakdown grip the planet. There is no global agreement on geoengineering and no rules on what countries or businesses can do. Um, well, there is the Treaty of 1976 on weather weapons. So again, it could be one of those things to say, well, we are engineering the atmosphere, but we're not changing the weather. Oh, oh. Well, doesn't the atmosphere depend on the weather or, you know, vice versa? Well, not really. And then there are those that say the global, uh, and again, I'm not a lawyer, 
the international United. You can watch this internet. Uh, 1976 Weather Weapons Treaty, United Nations. It's on the United Nations own website. People go, weather weapons are a conspiracy theorist, mate. Before I was even born, there was a treaty against them. So there is no treaty about Santa Claus, as far as I'm aware, because Santa Claus doesn't exist. But there is a treaty about weather weapons. So I would gather a, a thing to say if they didn't exist there might not be the treaty and if the treaty was signed in 76 how long did they exist before then well you can go and have a look at the patents office i've seen some stuff from the 20s from the united states patents office again i fail i fail in the knowledge to understand it fully but it looked like weather weapon technology to me and again i'm going from memory now the patents office but yeah i think i saw some stuff well before the 70s i think as far back as the 20s but that's just sort of basic stuff but again what are these efforts to geoengineer so we're in that thing now where we go oh there's geoengineering going on no that's a conspiracy theory keep saying it a conspiracy theory for 10 years at the end of 10 years go oh let's talk about geoengineering and it's a psychological tactic because half the planet are going well, it doesn't exist. And the other half are going, we told you it existed. And then the other half go, oh, it does exist. Oh, it does exist now. It didn't then, but it does now. And it's it, it's needed now. It's good for us. So they go very, very quickly from nut for 10 years. Nut job, 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 nut job. Oh, it is real, but you're wrong because it's good for the planet. So you're still a nut job. You know, nut job doesn't exist, nut job doesn't exist, nut job doesn't exist, nut job it does exist. How can you be against it? It's a wonderful thing. So it's a very, it's a it's a proven psychological tactic. I can't remember the, what it's called now, where it's deny, 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 admit, and then say the initial cause of why people should be alarmed about it is wrong and it's a good thing. And again, most people just... Hey, what Jim? Weather weapons? What's a football? What's a, a, a television? Coronation Street? But uh, what weather weapon? What's on EastEnders? It doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. What's on EastEnders? Oh, it, it does exist now. Oh, oh the television's got. Oh, it's a good thing. What's on? What's on the football? What's the score? Oh, it's all too much in my head. Don't talk about politics now. I've had a hard day of work. Put the telly on. Right. In a report published on Thursday, the Climate Overshoot Commission called on governments to phase out fossil fuels, put more resources into adapting to the impacts of extreme weather and start using technologies to remove carbon dioxide, such as carbon capture and storage and the capture of carbon directly from the air. Yeah, I'm not going into the whole climate thing today. I just wanted to give you an example of the historical context of doesn't exist, doesn't exist, doesn't exist. Oh, it does exist, but it's a good thing. No. Now, next is cash payments rise for first time in 10. Oh, and by the way, if you I bet if you still um, said, oh, what about this type of geoengineering? Well, that's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> but. But what if I call it by this name? Oh, that exists. But it's the same thing. No, 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 no. That's the word we use that exists. The word that you use doesn't exist. But the same thing does exist, but only in, if we use the words we use. So cash payments rise for the first time in 10 years. 
Payments made with cash rose for the first time in a decade last year as consumers struggled with rising prices, but the payment is still dwarfed by by debit card use, which is accounted for half of all payments, its highest ever level. Consumers often say they find it easier to manage their money using cash. However, UK Finance, which compiled the data, said it expected cash use to decline over the coming years once the current financial squeeze has eased. Oh, it's going to ease, is it? Interesting. So, let's now go for the balance of the show and listen to the interesting experiment that was Mouse Utopia. Now, this, there are several documentaries on this. This is just a YouTube sort of thing. I've studied it for... Studied it. I've watched stuff on it for years. And different documentaries do differ slightly in numbers and that sort of stuff. But the general gist of what's going on, um, you get the idea of remains the same. But anyway, I just wanted to say there could be some discrepancy on the exact numbers, data sizes, all that kind of stuff. So we're talking experiments done by some bloke over 50 years ago now in some cases. But anyway, you'll get the general gist of it. Mouse Utopia. Uh, I own This is from, uh, it's called The Mouse Utopia Experiments Down the Rabbit Hole by Frederick Knudsen. I own no copyright on anything. I have no idea of this other guys work um, so uh, let's have a listen and like I said there will be different um, you can put it onto YouTube watch 10 different documentaries on this and you'll probably find 10 different slight variations but the general gist is there so a listen Of the strange research to come out of mid-1900s America, there is little with a legacy as enduring or as terrifying as the Mouse Utopia experiments. Taking place throughout the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, The Grim Fate of the Subjects was published in the national magazine Scientific American, and the experiments themselves were largely taken as apocalyptic portents. In a post-war United States, the language used to describe the results such as behavior sync became synonymous with fears of an overpopulated world and violent, deviant behavior in cities. Today, they are preserved within fiction such as Channel 4's conspiracy thriller Utopia and the classic animated movie The Secret of Nim. So what were the Mouse Utopia experiments? Shortly after World War II, a group known collectively as the Environmentalists were making a large push to prevent environmental degradation, as well as over-exploitation of the planet's renewable resources. Among these people were a group specifically known as the Neo-Malthusians, a term referring to the 18th and 19th century English scholar Thomas Robert Malthus. Malthus proposed that, while the world's population may increase exponentially, food production can only increase linearly, leading to an eventual subsistence-level existence for the human race that became known as a Malthusian catastrophe. While advancements such as the Green Revolution saw that this didn't come about, the Neo-Malthusians acknowledged his concerns about overpopulation and feared that this pattern would result in the collapse of civilization or, at best, have extreme adverse effects. These fears were given a platform in writing of the time, especially in works such as William Folk's Road to Survival in 1948, and perhaps most famously, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson in 1962. 
Before the movement's explosion of popularity in the 50s and 60s, however, researchers had already begun work investigating the effects of population growth, and among them was a man named John B. Calhoun. Born in 1917, Calhoun took an early interest in science, specifically ornithology, publishing his first paper on birds when he was 15, but over time, his interest would change. By the time he received his PhD, his focus had turned to ethology, the study of animal behavior. When his education was concluded, he moved with his family to Towson, Maryland to begin research at John Hopkins University in nearby Baltimore, but the research itself would be conducted much closer to home. In 1947, shortly after he arrived, he approached his neighbor about using some of their neglected property for an experiment. The scope would be massive, and according to Calhoun, his neighbor probably didn't expect such a scale when they agreed to let him use the forested area. Taking over a quarter of an acre, Calhoun constructed a massive habitat, complete with food, water, ample shelter, and protection from predators, with the only limiting condition being their restriction to the quarter-acre living space. He affectionately provided his enclosure a name, Rat City. Unfortunately, no publicly available images of Rat City exist. Calhoun was very familiar with Norway rats, having performed research on them for his doctorate, and he estimated that Rat City could sustain approximately 5,000 individuals, though if they reached this number, the population density would be tight. He began by placing five pregnant females in the enclosure, providing ample genetic diversity, and soon the population was increasing exponentially. But then, something surprising happened. Rather than the population increasing to fill the space of the enclosure, it quickly leveled off at 150 members. He also noted some behavioral peculiarities. Despite the large size of Rat City, the residents seemed to gather around just a few places, forming social groups of 12 and limiting themselves to specific feeding locations. He would conclude the experiment after two years and four months, during which the population never grew over 200. Careful observation revealed the cause, high infant mortality. For some reason, as the experiment progressed and the population increased, the mothers were not caring for their young properly, leading to most of them dying before reaching maturity. Calhoun had his theories as to why this was, but to prove them, he would need more data. In 1954, about five years after his initial experiment concluded, he was hired by the National Institute of Mental Health, often shortened to NIM. Within the Laboratory of Psychology, Calhoun was given ample resources to continue his work. With a team, he began feverishly designing and constructing habitats, sometimes referred to as universes, where he performed numerous smaller scale and more controlled versions of his original rat study on a domesticated strain of albino Norway rat. These rats would want for nothing. All physical needs for a healthy rat lifestyle would be provided for them, including food, water, climate control, and nesting material. Calhoun spent eight years perfecting his enclosures and methods until finally, in February of 1962, an article of his writing was published in the magazine Scientific American. The article was entitled, Population Density and Social Pathology. His opening paragraph ominously reads so, quote, In the celebrated thesis of Thomas Malthus, vice and misery impose the ultimate natural limit on the growth of populations. Students of the subject have given most of their attention to misery, that is, to predation, disease, and food supply as forces that operate to adjust the size of a population to its environment. But what of vice? 
Setting aside the moral burden of this word, what are the effects of the social behavior of a species on population growth, and of population density on social behavior?" Unquote. To answer this question, he cited six of his experiments in particular, all with similar composition and concerningly similar results. The design of these habitats was simple. The layout was a rectangle measuring 10 feet by 14 feet, divided into four equal sections by electric fences. Three of these fences sported bridges over which the rats could climb, while one fence lacked such a bridge, essentially creating one long space that wrapped in on itself. Each section was equipped similarly, with a food hopper, water, and nesting areas accessible by spiral staircases. But Calhoun, leveraging his experience with the rats, made special changes to encourage specific behaviors. He enticed the rats to use one of the center pens by making the spiral staircase to that pen's living spaces shorter than the others, though he admits this was a comparatively small factor. But the more insidious change was to their food supply. In half of the experiments, Calhoun supplied powdered food, but in the other half he placed feeders of his own design, consisting of hard pellets behind a wire mesh. Half of his experiments began with 32 mice, the other half with 56, of evenly male and female composition, and all having just reached maturity. Calhoun estimated that approximately 40 rats could comfortably be housed in these enclosures, but he would allow these populations to increase to 80 before he would cull them. Almost immediately after introduction, things began to go awry. The females, unsurprisingly, spread themselves out somewhat evenly through the pens, but after the males jockeyed for dominance and those of highest rank were determined, they began to distribute themselves strangely. Less dominant male rats will typically awaken earlier and begin to wander and forage for food, and due to the design of the pen, this meant that they usually would end up in the center sections to eat. During this time, the dominant males of the outer pens would wake up and begin guarding their respective territories. Since there was only one entrance ramp to either end, the dominant males of either pen would bar the return of the less dominant males, forcing the male population to clump in the center pens, while the dominant end males protected what came to be their harems. Only a few other deferential males were allowed to remain. These few remaining males began exhibiting odd behavior, though they would spend most of their time in the burrows with the females, hiding away from the dominant male, they would never attempt to mate with any of them. Instead, perplexingly, they would try to mate with the dominant male, and even more perplexing, the dominant male would not fight these attempts. At the same time as this was happening, the effect of Calhoun's special feeders was taking hold. Since procuring food was such a lengthy process at the hard food feeders, it was common for one rat to join another while in the process of feeding. By this method, the rats slowly became conditioned to eating in the company of other rats until, eventually, the rats would refuse to eat unless another rat was present. Since more rats tended to be in the center pens, this behavior meant that, over time, more and more rats made their way there, further condensing them. This heightened the proximity of an already cramped population. In the experiments with the powdered food, this effect was far less pronounced. With these factors combined, Calhoun noted what he called a behavioral sink, or an increase in pathological activity in the rats due to the stress involved in such high population density. For the females, the behavioral sink manifested in reduced capacity for nest building and young rearing. Infant rats are extremely dependent upon their mothers for nearly all things. 
However, under the effects of the behavioral sink, the mothers would often be interrupted in their nest-building practices to engage in some other social activity. As time wore on, this led to sparser nests which could not house the young properly. If a mother decided to move her litter, she often would only move some of them or scatter them about the pen in separate locations. What's more, when female rats are ready to mate, the males can sense it, and the enclosed space meant that a female could not escape the continuous advances of the males during these periods. Even when they would enter their nests for a reprieve, they would be followed in and harrowed. These factors together resulted in an extremely high infant mortality rate, in one case reaching 96%. For the males, this manifested in different ways. The dominant males would occasionally lash out in violence against the other members of the pen, including infants, often biting and wounding their tails. Among the lower class males were three groups. The first he described as the homosexuals, which he immediately corrects as pansexuals, who would not compete for status, but would often attempt to mate with any other rat, regardless of gender or age. Much like in the end pens, these advances went unchallenged. The second group he described as somnambulists, who moved slowly through the pen without interacting with other individuals in any fashion, and the other rats in turn ignored them, except in rare circumstances. These rats externally he described as fat, sleek, and healthy looking. But to him, the strangest group was the third, which he named the probers. These rats were hyperactive, hypersexual, and pansexual. Despite violence from the dominant males, they would viciously pursue females in heat, eschewing any sort of courtship ritual and following them into their burrows to mate. Later on in the experiments, they would often find the corpses of the improperly cared for young, which they would cannibalize. In time, one of Calhoun's assistants would publicly describe these pens as hell. At this point, Calhoun ended the experiments, but he predicted that these pathological changes would have eventually led to the deaths of the colonies. At their conclusion, he would take the four healthiest males and females and allow them to breed, but their behavior had been so inexorably altered that none of their pups survived beyond weaning. So, the, uh, it will continue. That's where I'll leave that there. It did contain some some background music in that. I don't know where I am on playing that. So if anyone has a problem with anything that I've played, because I own no copyright on anything, please email me beyond the news at protonmail.com. All right, so you can go and finish. Because that's only half the experiment. It gets even grimmer from there. And uh, I think you can see, well, some can see parallels with today's society. But uh, I'll, leave, I'll leave it at that grim note. And uh, if you want even more of the grimness, go on to the comments and look for the video Mouse Utopia. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.